Well, hello and welcome to this Bird Bite podcast. We're coming to that time of year where Europe goes off and takes a holiday for the month of August. And we in Berg thought that this would be a useful time to do a stock take. Where are we? What's happening? And what's likely to happen? Now, a lot of these issues will be on the agenda for our Berg meeting in Sitges in uh, October, the 7th and 8th of October. And we're delighted to be able to be heading back to such meetings. But hey, they're still dependent on whether or not COVID is under control. Vaccinations continue to roll out and travel regulations allow well, allow for travel. So we thought we'd start by looking at the European Union legislative agenda. Uh, those of you who pay attention to Europe will know that it's a while since we've seen a sort of activist agenda from the European Union. I can think back to the 1970s, I'm sort of that old, where in the days of the first Irish EU commissioner, uh, and he was the commissioner for social affairs, Paddy Hillary, we saw a legislative burst which brought us such directives as the Collective Redundancies Directive, the Transfers of Undertakings Directive, and of course, uh, a number of very important directives on equality as between men and women uh, in the workplace. Then, in the 1980s, um, because Margaret Thatcher had become UK Prime Minister in 1979, uh, and the UK used its veto to prevent any uh, social policy or employment laws legislative initiative moving forward, uh, basically we saw nothing. Until towards the end of that decade, when Jack Delors had become EU Commission President, uh, social policy began to move on to a qualified majority vote basis as a result, first of all, of the single European Act and then subsequently the Maastricht Treaty. And during the days of the law, um, we saw health and safety legislation, the very significant range of health and safety legislation that's now in place. We saw legislation on working time. And of course, we saw the European Works Council Directive being adopted in 1973, becoming law in 1976. But thereafter, everything went quiet. If you look at the agenda, if you look at what the actual legislation adopted by the European Union on social policy or labour affairs issues uh, since the days of the law, it's actually quite thin. Now, before I come to talk about what I now consider to be a very activist agenda, I do want to make and enter one important caveat you know, on what I called change dynamics. Now, I mentioned a couple of minutes ago that during the 1980s, uh, UK governments um, vetoed um, because everything had to be adopted unanimously in those days. And the UK government vetoed any potential changes in legislation during that decade. Right? But the UK is now gone, you know. It's an empty chair. Actually, it's not an empty chair. They took their chair and went home. A bit like the kid, you know, said, I'm taking my football and I'm going home. I, I don't like the way you're playing with me. I, so does that change the dynamics? Because around the table over the years, even though legislation could be adopted on a majority basis, it's always been the European Union way to look for consensus, to try and f make sure that everybody was happy, or at least not unhappy with, the way they were going forward. But the UK is now gone. Um, Ireland, who has much the same sort of 
approach to labour market legislation as the UK always had, voluntarism, it's known in academic terms. Um, but Ireland doesn't have the political heft in these matters that the UK had. So are we likely to see a more activist agenda moving forward at a more at a quicker pace because the UK is no longer there to slow things down? Personally, I think we are. We only have to look at, and we'll come on to this a little bit later, we only have to look at some of the things that have been happening in the likes of Spain and Germany around, for example, um, supply chain uh, legislation in Germany or around uh, AI, artificial intelligence governance in Spain, to see that you know, these are now the trendsetters. This is now where the pace is going to be set. So, yeah. I think we're going to see a change dynamic. I'm going to see. Think we're going to see things being done differently and at a different pace because the UK is no longer there. Having said all of that, what's in the pipeline? Now, in this, I'm concentrating on new upcoming legislation. Of course, there's existing legislation that still has to be transposed and uh, international legislation and activated at a national level, such as, for example, legislation on posted workers or whistleblowing, um, for example, just to give you two examples. Uh, and I'm not really concerned in this either about you know, technical uh, health and safety legislation around carcinogenics or as, asbestos or stuff like that. Um, not that they're not important, but they are not, you know, it's, central to the employment um, and labour relations agenda per se. Now, as we in Berg see it, there are seven issues that are going to take up time. There's the Gender Pay Transparency Directive. We've spoken about this before. Um, we've looked at this before. We've run webinars on this before. And this is about closing the pay gap between men and women. Uh, important. Clarification on the right of collective bargaining, on the right to collective bargaining for gig economy workers. And gig economy workers also includes solo self-employed workers, such as IT contractors. And as I like to say, does that include the, the guy who cuts the garden in my local neighborhood? He's solo self-employed. Who's he going to negotiate with? But I'll come back to that. Right? And then, of course, we have a very significant piece of legislation on... Um, a European framework on minimum wages, and uh, which also incorporates an obligation on countries to promote collective bargaining as the appropriate way of setting wages. Fourth, we have a, a review, a consultation on the employment status of gig economy workers. Are they workers or are they self-employed? Or are we likely to see something in between? And I just mentioned Germany has just passed a law on supply chain, supply chain due diligence. Uh, sometimes it's difficult to get your tongue around some of these things. Um, and we're going to see similar legislation at the European Union level. Now, the last year and a half has seen us all, a great many of us, working from home, working remotely. And this brings into question, when do we disconnect? the right to disconnect. And the European Parliament is pushing for legislation uh, on such a right, a right to disconnect. And finally, not exactly mainstream employment law, 
uh, or labor relations stuff, but the European Union recently published proposals on the governance of artificial intelligence systems. And in that paper, they've dropped in artificial intelligence algorithm decision-making on recruitment and promotion and other human resource stuff as being a high-risk category. So what does that mean? Does that mean that uh, employers are going to have to inform and consult with unions around all of these things? Now, seven items there that are going to form the agenda over the coming year. Noticeably absent from that, noticeably absent, is anything to do with uh, European Works Councils. There are no proposals for changing the legislation on European Works Council at this time, even though the unions have been calling for that for the last couple of years. But the European Parliament is working on an own initiative report on this. And as we understand it, that report will be available later this year and will probably call for extensive changes in the legislation, though whether that will go anywhere or not um, is an open question. And even if it did, by the time legislation will be framed, discussed, go through the system, transposed into national law. We're looking at four or five years down the road. For now, for most of the companies we and Baird deal with, the biggest issue when it comes to European Work Councils is trying to work out how best do we work with European Work Councils when we actually can't meet in person. And we're not likely to be able to meet in person to the extent we did previously anytime soon. How do we make European Work Councils work when a great deal of business meetings and European World Councils can't be an exception to this, are going to move onto, onto an, a, ver a virtual basis. I mentioned seven items there, but there are others, of course, that will have an impact, you know, such as, for example, uh, the general data protection uh, regulation and you know, the problems that exist uh, because of the SHREMS 1 and SHREMS 2 about the transfer of data to the United States. And just last week in our newsletter, we reported on yet another, what we might call SHREMS 3, um, a case arising from Austria challenging the stuff around Facebook. Um, all of these things are difficult. And of course, you know, the European Court of Justice, not just in general data protection, but elsewhere, um, continues to interpret and reinterpret um, existing directives. So for example, in 2019, just before COVID hit us, uh, the court had decided and issued a judgment which said that member states had to put in place uh, systems to ensure that all working time was recorded, you know, you know, which raises all sorts of fascinating questions about how do you record working time in a virtual world where people don't actually have to go to work. They can almost work at, at when and when they will. And as we reported last week as well, I mean, it now appears that soldiers in the French army have the right to clock off at five o'clock and go home for an aperitif um, because the working time law appears to apply to the French army. You are and to date, indeed, to all armies and whatever the French army might do after they've had their aperitif at five o'clock and between five and seven is another matter. But you know, the elephant in the room, and it's a big elephant in the room is of course Brexit. Yeah. Um, yeah, as the prime minister, Boris Johnson might say, Brexit has been done. He got Brexit done. But as my good friend, the former Labour MP and Minister Dennis McShane says, um, 
Brexit will never be done. We're in Brexit energy, a continuous, endless negotiation between the European Union and the United Kingdom over all and anything to do with trade and trade relationships and the totality of relationships between the two of them. We already know the difficulties about that the fish, fishing sector, manufacturing industry, farmers, musicians uh, have in trying to do business with Europe. And that's before the UK itself has put in place its own border controls. Uh, despite taking back control, the UK has failed to put in place any border controls other than when it comes to people with the European Union. Oh, COVID has also hidden or masked a great deal of the downsides of Brexit because of the fact that people just simply haven't been traveling. But when they do come to travel again, and when business people can't travel again, they're suddenly going to find that it's not that easy to wake up in the morning and say, I'll book myself a ticket on the Eurostar or on EasyJet to go somewhere or other in Europe and do business today, because business may require, if you want to do business and you're a UK citizen, it may require that you have a visa or a work permit. And you know, you'd be in that non-EU citizen line at the airport and you know the border guards may well say to you, ah, what are you doing here today, sir? You know, and well, do you have a piece of paper to allow you to do that? So all of that has, has, has yet to come. And of course, if there's an elephant in the room, um, then the elephant in the elephant in the room is the whole Northern Ireland situation, where last week the UK asked the European Union, can we go back to square one and basically renegotiate the whole Northern Ireland protocol? Can we cut that out of the rest of the withdrawal agreement and the trade and cooperation agreement and go back and renegotiate it again? And the European Union said no. So we're likely to see some sort of difficulties, to put it at its mildest, around that in the latter part of this year. And going back to European World's Councils, of course, for many Baird members, Oh, the question of whether we keep British representatives on the European Works Council is still an open question. Now, of course, there's no question that you about basing EWCs in the UK, you can't do that. But actually, UK legislation is now written in such a way as, I believe, open the possibility that um, British-based companies, companies headquartered in the UK to some degree or other may be required to set up e parallel UK EWCs in parallel with European EWCs. Now, a bit of a nightmare scenario. That question is currently before the Employment Appeals Tribunal as a result of uh, a decision by the Central Arbitration Committee in the case of EasyJet. And we hopefully we'll have a result of that sometime in the next couple of months and hopefully it'll bring some clarity to situations. I've been talking about the European Union, but, you know, there's a lot going on in individual company levels. Just to take a couple of examples, a couple of examples. We've seen in Spain, for instance, the new what so-called Reuters Law, which applies to the likes of uh, Uber Eats and Deliveroo, which basically said that these guys are employees, they're not self-employed, but it goes further. And this is where it has implications for all companies. The legislation suggests that there's an obligation on management to share the metrics or whatever you might want to call it of algorithms with employees or their representatives and to discuss how they apply to human resource decision making. We've seen, for instance, in Germany, an upgrade 
or an update on the Works Council law. And again, interestingly, that includes a new right for Works Councils to be able to hire an expert on artificial intelligence and algorithms. Ireland has introduced a very substantive code of practice on the right to disconnect. And Ireland is very actively rolling out a policy of encouraging um, remote working and setting up remote working hubs uh, across the country and not insignificant given the number of American companies located in Ireland, especially social media companies that are headquartered in Ireland. I'm thinking Google, I'm thinking Facebook, uh, for, 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 for example. Um, and of course, again, coming back to European Works Councils, which has always been the bread and butter um, of Berg, uh, many Berg members have moved to European Works Councils from the UK to Ireland as a result of Brexit. We know that there are deficiencies in the Irish legislation, especially when it comes to how disputes involving EWCs are to be resolved. And it's very, very helpful to see that the biggest Irish trade union, SIP2, um, are encouraging the government to amend the legislation to ensure that disputes involving EWCs will, in the first instance, go to mediation before having to go to the Labour Court for a binding decision. Oh, given our own experience over the last few years with cases and disputes jumping straight from an argument between management and the EWC into the Central Arbitration Committee in the UK without any intermediary mediation step. I think what we think, what SIP2 is suggesting that disputes should be mediated in the first instance before they actually go for a legally binding decision is something that we could certainly um, live with and work with. And it's the sort of thing that makes sense. Oh, I mentioned COVID and telework. And of course, you know, during the last year, uh, put it bluntly, when COVID happened, we all ran for the hills and began to work from home as best we could. And quite frankly, um, uh, attention to health and safety laws, to working time laws, to data protection laws and so on, uh, weren't exactly the top priority. How do we keep the show on the road? How do we keep people continuing to work and work productively? How do we keep people safe? Uh, they were the priorities. But as remote working and hybrid working begins to get built into future employment models, then we need to turn and pay attention to uh, to those laws. How do we make sure that teleworking, as the French called it, remote working, hybrid working, now how do we ensure that you know a million individual workplaces uh, conform to what is required by the law? Not going to be easy. They're difficult questions, but they are questions that will have to be faced. And also, can teleworking always be voluntary as the unions would want can people insist on going back into the office if they want we're not convinced that they can employees have never had the right to insist where they work that's always been a decision for employers so this could become an issue um, of some importance as we go forward i want to spend a couple of minutes talk we i mentioned that in the seven issues that are on the, the legislative initiatives that are on the european union agenda Three of them touch on collective bargaining, the minimum wage, collective bargaining rights for self-employed workers, and possibly also collective bargaining insofar as it touches on uh, gender pay transparency. Um, 
The European Commission appears to believe that collective bargaining is the only or the most appropriate way of regulating pay and working conditions. In, for instance, the proposed directive on minimum pay, um, it suggests that where collective bargaining coverage falls below 70% of the workforce, then member states would have to put an action plan in place to sort out the situation. And yeah, look at the figures. The OECD database on trade union density suggests that at best, 15% of private sector workers, maybe 15, 16% of private sector workers across Europe are members of trade unions. Well, that means that, you know, you don't need to be a mathematical genius to work out that 85% of workers in the private sector are not members of trade unions. So if that's the case, why should a commission or why should legislation be promoting collective bargaining as the only way for employers to engage with employees or their representatives? You know, and why should trade unions be the only legitimate representatives of employees? If employees want to join a trade union, if a majority of employees want to join a trade union and negotiate their terms and conditions with their employer, then the law should be facilitative of that. But we don't think that the law should be providing unique access for trade unions to workplaces. Trade unions should grow from within. They should be what the employees want themselves, not what some outside organization thinks is best for employees. You know, sometimes to listen to trade unions, you think that they were so morally correct that it can only be obstructive employers that are preventing hundreds, thousands of workers, millions of workers from joining unions because what the unions are offering is so obviously in the interest of workers that if it wasn't for obstructive employers, they'd be joining in their thousands and not their millions. So we think we need a debate around these issues. We think we need a considered debate around these issues around what what does employee representation mean? And, you know, if 85% of private sector workers are not joining trade unions and there's no great legislation or no great practices in Europe that prevents them from doing so, then you have to ask yourself the question, do unions have an offer that employees find attractive? And if the answer to that is no, they don't have an offer that unions that employees find attractive, then why should the European Commission be propping them up when employees themselves are voting with their feet or not voting with their feet, as the case may be, uh, in terms of not, not, not joining? But these are issues for another day and for further discussion. You know, but we need to be careful about trying to force employees to do things they don't necessarily want to do. So let me finish with some concluding thoughts. Regulation is necessary in complex societies. Otherwise, we wouldn't work. We don't allow people to freely jump in a car and go on the road. We have rules of the road. We have rules about cars and the safety of cars. We have rules about speed limits. We're not trying to stop people driving 
I'm just trying to ensure that when they drive, they drive in a way that is both safe to themselves and safe to the other road users. In other words, we know that we can't leave the rules of the road and driving to the, quote, responsibility of individual drivers. And by the way, if you don't believe me on that, you know, look at the, the panic that, you know, these electric scooters are cr- causing in cities across Europe. What do they call them in French? Trois I think it is, right? Where they speed up and down, and, you know, you know, that's what happens when you don't have regulations. And of course, labor market regulation is about having safe and secure workplaces in which people are treated equally. We in Europe have come a very long way in that regard, you know, and despite what you might hear from some people, we have safe, secure, and by and large, by and large, you know, uh, decently run workplaces in Europe. Of course, of course, there's always the bad employer and where we identify bad practices, they need to be driven out lest they drag all the rest of us down with them. We don't live anymore in an age of the cold mines or the satanic mills of the Industrial Revolution. The digital economy needs to be regulated in a different way to those satanic mills. And, of course, remote working is causing us to rethink the whole idea of going out to work because we don't go out to work anymore in the sense of leaving the house, getting on a train or a bus going downtown. We're working from home, you know. And of course, the use of algorithms and decision-making needs to be taught through and we need to be sure about how we do this, right? But, you know, we need to be careful. Legislation needs to be smart. Legislation and regulation needs to facilitate, not suffocate. And when we look at the extent of the proposed new regulatory agenda, put that on top of the existing European Union acquis, we just need to be careful that the extent of the regulation that we're contemplating doesn't strangle business. You know, you know. sometimes when I read some of the things my friends in the trade unions and the NGOs write, you would think that the business of business is you know, due diligence processes rather than making products or services that they can sell to people and that people want to buy. You know, the business of business is not due diligence. The business of business is goods and services. You know? And we need to be extremely careful that we don't overload the legislative agenda. You know? To finish, let me say, a balanced regulatory environment is helpful Indeed, desirable. An unbalanced one will simply strangle business and kill jobs. That is to be avoided. So, that's it from us in Berg until early September. Hopefully, most of you, all of you, can enjoy a pleasant August. Hopefully, the sun will shine. The rain will stay away. And if you're planning holidays, Have a nice holiday and we'll see you again in September. Thanks for listening.